I'm Erin Hosier. My favorite literary podcast is Other People with Brad Listy. BuzzFeed calls Other People the perfect way to get the stories behind your stories. You know you trust BuzzFeed. You do all the quizzes when you're waiting for this pandemic to pass. Find new episodes every Wednesday online at otherpeople.com. That's otherppl.com or at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It was always fun on that level, but also because he was a drug addict, we found out later. I mean, I didn't have any clue. I just thought he was insane. This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. How do you forgive your father for institutionalizing you when he's the one who might be crazy? What's it like to attend AA meetings with him but never technically make amends? On this episode, editorial director of Paper Magazine, Mickey Boardman, talks about growing up with a secret addict for a father, having a therapist who tried to cure him of being gay by prescribing a sex worker, and what it's like to be the only man in his family whose stomach hasn't exploded. Just a heads up, this episode contains frank discussion about childhood drug abuse and suicide. Well, it was a total accident that I ended up in New York City. I was not one of those people who always thinks, God, I've got just got to get to New York City. I was born in Chicago and grew up in the very glamorous suburbs of Chicago, Hanover Park, Illinois, to be exact. And I have a BA in Spanish from Purdue University, and I did my junior year abroad in Madrid. While I was there, I sort of decided that I wanted to become a fashion designer, and my parents were not into that idea. And originally, I, you know, I maybe wanted to go to California, I think, when I first was going to college. But my parents said, you have to go somewhere that's close enough that if you have a nervous breakdown, we can pick you up by car. Like, you can't go to a coast. So that's how I ended up in Indiana. So then I finished school, went back to Spain to teach English, and then moved to New York to go to Parsons to study fashion design. And I did three and a half years of a BFA, but failed a class my senior year, so never graduated. But while I was uh, still in school, I got an internship at Paper. I always loved magazines my whole life. I remember being 10 years old at Dominic's supermarket at Tradewinds Mall, like looking at the cover of Vogue with Isabella Rossellini or Sherry Belafonte Harper. It would like alternate each month. Those were the only two people ever on the cover. And they were always in like a chunky turtleneck and just like from the neck up showing. And it really was sort of stupid at the time. It was Grace Mirabella's era at the time. This is- and I remember thinking, like, what's a good excuse for a 10-year-old boy to buy Vogue magazine at Dominic's? And I can't remember what I came up with, but I ended up always getting it. So it was maybe the, the time my mother would pull up in front of the supermarket and send me in with $20 to get two cartons of cigarettes, a carton of camels, no filter for my dad, and a carton of Parliament filters for her. So and you could get two cartons of cigarettes for $20 and a Vogue magazine. Anywho's, so that's why I got to New York, and that's how I ended up at Paper. And I never knew you could really work at a magazine, but I always loved magazines. And the minute I walked in the door at Paper, I sort of knew this was the place for me. I just felt like it was the people were my types of people. They loved everything about me, whereas at school, I was very much not understood or enthusiastically received, maybe because I was a drug addict. And at the time, also, this it's changed very much now, and I do a lot with the school and But at the time, it was very much all about training you to have a job on 7th Avenue, to be Michael Kors' assistant or Marc Jacobs' assistant. And so I just wanted to do crazy, fun stuff. Half the time, there were no clothes. I remember I did, like, a Las Vegas collection of girls on swings, basically, in, like, headdresses and pantyhose. And it's like they were 
like where are the fucking clothes and it's like but it was so fun i mean this they i don't know if i saved it but they looked amazing these girls on swings covered in glitter and I did a collection called Jackie Ho, which was Jackie Onassis meets hip hop inspired by Criss Cross, that band that wore their clothes backwards. So that there was an evening gown that looked like a long T-shirt with like backwards jeans at the bottom. Like I thought it was so fun and so great. And they just crickets would chirp when I would present them. They um, I did like a whole coal miner's daughter heroin chic thing. Like I did all this crazy. The Supremes go to Shanghai and they just were like <laughs> not into it at all. I had a few teachers who thought it was who encouraged me, but they but then every once in a while, as a sort of a joke, I would do something that I knew they would love, like put the vest outside the jacket and they'd like shit their pants and be like, oh, my God, it's amazing. And it's like, you know, it's something so dumb and simple as putting the vest outside. The jacket. I wanted to ask how your parents or specifically your dad, is he aware of, you know, your success with paper? Are they subscribers? Um, they are subscribers and they do look at it. And my mother's very vocal about complaining when it's late or if she hasn't gotten an <laughs> issue or something like that. And in a way, they I don't think they understand in any way what I do. I mean, they, they knew that I was creative and worked at a magazine. But um, so in a way they do now. And in a way, I don't know that they ever will. I always used to when I was a kid think, oh, my God, I was delivered by the stork to the wrong house. Like I love to travel. I, lo I love everything that no one else in my family loved. You know, I don't care about sports except maybe Bjorn Borg and short shorts or, you know, <laughs> like sports have been ruined by these baggy shorts. Where are the hot pants? Do you know what I mean? That's what people want to mm -hmm. see. At least that's what I want to see. But um, so I would always say like, God, I was delivered to the wrong house. And then one day I was thinking to myself, wait a minute. If I think I was delivered to the wrong house, what must my parents think? It's like I'm named after Mickey Mantle. My dad wanted someone to play catch with or to watch sports on TV or to talk about big boobs and things like that. And he'd talk about a bait and switch. I mean, so that actually was for me a big realization that it's, you know, to look at it from the other person's perspective and maybe you're the problem. You know what I mean? Maybe it's not just them. It's um, and, you know, so there you go. Did, when you were a little boy, did you sense that he wanted those things that you just said, like playing catch or that, um, that there was like a, a that you weren't fitting in there? I think I didn't relate to him in a way, not necessarily because of anything he did. He didn't actively like I mean, he didn't get excited when, you know, I wanted to be Cinderella for Halloween when I was five. But I mean, we, we just kind of didn't click. It wasn't something of him actively putting me down necessarily. Um just, I guess it's part of the realization that you, like, as I said, that I have to think of it from their perspective, like, you know, and I was a real handful. I mean, I was gay, which is fabulous. But for my parents, that was not the look. And that was something they didn't know how to deal with. And they're amazing about it now. But at first, it was a problem for them. And they did a great job. They worked really hard at it. And it was a handful. And, you know, I have to give them credit for that. And it's, you know, I don't regret that I was so difficult, but it's, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would be a little bit less difficult, probably. And I, I imagine maybe they would do things differently as well. I'm curious about, you know, your your little kid years with him. What was he like in those years well, in the he, house? He worked a lot. He's a pharmacist. He was a pharmacist. He's retired now. And also so a drug jealous. And so also, jealous. also a drug addict. <laughs> okay, so he was not like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, but I never knew he was a drug addict. That was the irony. I mean, it makes it's like, duh. He works in a giant hospital surrounded by pills, like mm -hmm. a total nonstop supply of every drug you can imagine. And he, at that time, he worked in a giant, very big hospital, giant, very big, as opposed to a giant, very small <laughs> hospital in um, Chicago, where I was born, St. Joseph's Hospital on Lake. 
Lakeshore Drive, which was run by nuns, just to throw in another fun, interesting twist. (laughs) And where I was actually hospitalized later when I tried to commit suicide and had some mental issues, I was hospitalized at St. Joseph's. So it's kind of the, you know, recurring theme of my life is this hospital. But um, he, you know, left in the morning at very early and drove through rush hour traffic for an hour or whatever to work, worked all day, came back and you know, really, it was my mother was our parent. I mean, and my dad was, yes, in a way. But he also, there was a phase where he didn't get along with my mom's parents or my mom's family. So we would go to grandma's house all the time and he wouldn't come. So it was he was a little bit of kind of like just a cameo figure, not so much of like the really daily kind of thing. But, you know, he and everyone in my family, you know, everyone is so smart and so funny and is such a great arguer. You know, my brother's a lawyer who can fucking annoy the hell out of you with arguments constantly, but also very entertaining and very smart. So, I, you know, he was it was always fun on that level, but also because he was a drug addict, we found out later. I mean, I didn't have any clue. I just thought he was insane because when I was very young, he had some medical issues and he was operated on, guess where, St. Joseph's Hospital. (laughs) And um he some metal sutures were left inside him. And so then that fucked him up. And the original problem was something gallbladder related. He also had pancreas issues. So like he couldn't eat spicy food, he couldn't alcohol sort of had a crazy reaction with him and made him deathly ill. So he didn't drink that much every once in a blue moon, he would get drunk, but um, very rarely. So anyway, when he was leaving the hospital after they had taken out the metal sutures, they stapled him shut. And as he was walking out of the hospital with my mother, the staples popped open. So his guts literally sort of spilled out. And my mom said he was wearing a white cardigan sweater. And all of a sudden he collapsed and the sweater was like totally red in one second. And later, years later, my brother fell over the back of a chair and ruptured his cecum, which is the entrance to your large intestine. And it got blocked and the thing grew and grew and grew and eventually it exploded and he almost died. But anyway, so anyway, I'm the only male member of my family whose guts have not exploded, which makes you think, damn, your guts are going to explode, right? It's like, when's it going to happen? So anytime I get a pain, I'm like, oh, now it's my turn. But the point of the story being, so my dad, I just thought was insane because every few years he would kind of go off on a bender, disappear, come back in the middle of the night, throw shit, kick us out of the house. And, you know, we would get in the car and have to drive to grandma's house or to a hotel or something. So I just thought that was insanity. And then later when I was in college living in Madrid, my mother took him, made him go to rehab at Christmas time. And she told me, like, oh, I just had to take, I'm sorry, I wasn't around. I had to take your dad to rehab. And I was like, rehab? Like, for what? And so it turned out he'd been on drugs all those times. And so at first I was very pissed that he was a drug addict because I thought, you know, it's one thing if you're mentally ill, you can't really help it. You just, you're sort of a victim yourself. You're, you know, it's, but if you're on drugs, it's, I was sort of thinking like, oh, he's like off having a good time and then, you know, terrorizing us or making our lives crazy. And... Then later on, I realized, you know, he was doing the best he could. And hello, I became a drug addict and tortured the people I love and everything like that. So, you know, it's sort of understandable. But it was he I didn't really relate to him so much until much later. Like he's been sober for a long time, although he's had some moments of relapse, but throughout his life. But he just is so friendly and wants to be everybody's friends and so nice. So it's you know, he's a great person, although that's a whole other issue. He's like the opposite of my mother who wants to have the hard conversations and will not put up with bullshit but whereas my dad will kind of let you get away with anything because he's super nice he's a capricorn p.s has your dad ever apologized to you for those episodes not really i mean I, he never has done the steps or anything i think of you know and i don't and even know if he's had a the, sponsor the but, steps in aa in aa mm-hmm. but um and is your brother also in recovery he is yeah 
And he has done the steps. And I don't think he's ever apologized to me. And he made me jump out the window once when we were like 10 years old. But that's a whole other story. When your dad would rage in the middle of the night and kick you out of the house, do you remember those episodes? Absolutely. Were you scared of him? So I wasn't like necessarily afraid for my safety, but it was just so scary and crazy. And sometimes, you know, the irony of the whole thing was we're, we're in a very middle class neighborhood, like the classic middle class, like split level suburban homes. But we were like the richest family in the neighborhood, which that's I'm not bragging and whatever. It's like being, you know, the the cutest troll. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> but um, so people thought like, oh, they have BMWs or, other, you know, whatever. We just had a sort of lot of stuff. So people sort of thought of us and would tease me or something about having being rich or have, you know. And meanwhile, we sort of lived in this crazy house, which and the thing is, it wasn't like I said, it wasn't always crazy. It was just every few years, something like a big blow up would happen. And the weird thing, too, is it wasn't even the blow ups that bothered me so much because I was sort of like, you know, well, he, OK, the blow up happened. So now we'll have a couple years of relaxation. You know what I mean? So it was always the kind of like, but if it had been a while, it'd be like, oh, shit, like, when's it going to happen or what's going to happen? And. You know, I recently talked to my mother about it, and I just said, did you know he was on drugs at that time? And she said she actually didn't, but she eventually suspected it just because he was acting so crazy. And I guess it's, I, I feel dumb that I didn't even think of that because even still, like now that I've been sober for 22 years, I could be talking to a person and they can be acting so insane. And I'll be like, God, that person's crazy. And not realizing, obviously they're on drugs or they're drunk mm -hmm. or, you know what I mean? It just somehow... Mm -hmm. my radar for that doesn't really work so much. And, you know, it, all this sounds so dramatic. And so, like, it's so funny because I went to an AA. My brother dragged me to an AA meeting in Tampa, Florida, where he lives and my parents now live. And it was one of these kind of things where you go in a circle and everybody shares, not where you raise your hand the way it usually is in New York City. So we went around and I did my spiel. And then my brother was sharing and he was talking about his childhood. And I remember... Without thinking, I thought to myself, oh, my God, what a terrible childhood he had. And then I said, wait a minute. He was in the next bed. Like, we shared a room. Like, did I have a terrible childhood? Because I never would have thought I had a terrible childhood. Because we always had fun, and we went to Disneyland, and we went to the beach, you know, and stuff like that. But, so I don't know. I still am a little bit torn about like that. I don't, I hate to say, like, to act like my childhood was so terrible or so horrific. Because everybody's childhood, mm. in a way, is is crazy. I mean... Well, you know, they're, whether people are sexually abused or whether their mother thinks they're not pretty enough or, you know, everybody has some fucking baggage. So, right. Did your drug of choice match up with your father or brother's drug of choice? In a way, although I have a bad attitude about that, too, because I was a crystal meth addict, among other things. And my brother did was an alcoholic and cokehead. And I always looked down on the cokeheads because I thought they were <laughs> pussies because I thought crystal meth <laughs> is much more classic. hardcore. And my dad was more my dad kind of I, and I haven't really had a deep conversation about it. I mean, he got farm. He had, you know, pharmaceutical grade stuff yeah. from the hospital. So, but he, and was, we're all kind of into amphetamines in a way, but, um, but he also was into other things, you know, he was yeah. kind of into anything, which I also at points in my life have been kind of, I just wanted to be on drugs. I didn't care what sure. it was. So like I ended up becoming a heroin addict, which I didn't like at all, but it was just easier to get than, cause back in those days, crystal meth, we would have to send cash to California and have it FedExed back, FedEx the drugs back. And it's like everyone obviously involved in the transaction was on drugs also. So that really fucks things up. You know, it's like, <laughs> I remember after I got, was in rehab, I got like the, two months later, I got like a FedEx package of crystal meth. And I was like, what is this? like, I don't even know what this is from. Like, when did I send money? I would like chase after FedEx. I got really good at tracking FedExes down too. And this is before cell phones. I mean, I, and I remember running after a FedEx truck in Soho because I was leaving for the airport to go to Prague or something like that and needed to get these drugs before. But how anyway. reliable was that 
as a business model. Very unreliable. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it was still, it made your life full of surprises. You know, I mean, you had to get a lot of cash and which was, I mean, not a lot of cash, whatever. I mean, all the cash I had, I would spend and friends and I would go in on it together and we would send it. And you, you know, we had a few different people who had said one, one friend worked at the Smith and Hawken catalog. So she would send it in a Smith and Hawken catalog, like in a FedEx. What's the Smith and Hawken catalog? Do you know, don't you know the Smith and Hawken? It's like bougie gardening, right? Oh. Yeah, bougie yeah. gardening. I've mm-hmm. never, the only time I've seen it was when I was peeling drugs out of it. So I don't even really know, but <laughs> yeah, bougie gardening. In the meetings, would you reveal, you know, like in Tampa, stories like this? And then when it was your father's turn to share, did he reveal things that surprised you? I've only been to a few meetings with him, with my dad. So no, he didn't even really share anything. Mm-hmm. My brother, on the other hand, will share everything. And he also shares it sort of more in more big picture things. So when you were a little boy, do you remember how old you were the first time you did drugs? And what kind of drugs were you doing as a, as a kid kid? Not, you know, I remember in sixth grade, I smoked pot with my brother because he was in seventh grade. And I drank for the first time probably in sixth grade or seventh grade. Then our high school, Hoffman Estates High School, was very like preppy, jockey kind of like. So if I did drugs then, which like I would get some amphetamines from friends or whatever, that was... It was as if you were like a child molester. You know, what I mean, it was so sh- everyone was so shocked and horrified. Meanwhile, those same people who were shocked and horrified would get shit faced drunk every weekend and date rape somebody or, you right. know, that kind of thing. And then later when I came to New York is when I first tried crystal meth for the first time. And I'm a little bit of a sort of um, hyperactive child. And it sort of acted like Ritalin, like it made me super focused. Mm-hmm. And I would write in my journal for 48 hours. And that's when I finally like sort of forgave my father and realized that we're all in this, you know, have all these kind of shocking revelations and stuff together. You had that revelation when you were high on meth? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And it carried over, like you come down, Yeah. you process that and, and that stuck yeah. with you. When I have a revelation, it kind of often just kind of, it's just becomes the new normal kind of situation. And I mean, but now even as I get older, it's kind of, you know, everyone, like I said, if everyone's just doing the best they can, it's all fine. No, but, you know, holding a grudge doesn't really help anybody or, you know, being bitter and pissed. How old were you when you realized that you were gay? And what made you think that that wasn't okay? I remember, I mean, I always related to like the princess in the movie, you know what I mean? Or, you know, what I mean, I was, you know, wanted to watch the Judy Garland movies as a kid. And I remember when I was about 10 or some, you know, some barely double digit or single digit number i would always have to go to my brother's baseball games or football games and they were always like he was barely a year or a little bit less than a year older than me and he always had super hot friends who i always had crushes on and i had such a crush on this kid joey del preto who had a girlfriend named paulina cadena that was her real name can you imagine but um so anyway joey was like walking by and we were i was sitting in the front seat of my mother's car and in the back was, I don't know if my, we were waiting for my brother, but his friends were in the back because it was like a carpool situation. And I remember, you know, when you sort of think you're thinking something to yourself, but you actually say it out loud accidentally. And I just, as Joey walked by, I said, God, Joey Del Preto is so cute. And the kid, the guys in the backseat all were teasing me and making fun of me for saying it. And my mother was like, shut up. It's true. Joey Del Preto is really cute, which I thought was weirdly supportive. And I don't know why I necessarily thought it was wrong. I mean, everyone it just that's what you were sort of told at the time and i mean you never had any gay role models like today you know the only gays ever in any movie or tv were like a serial killer or child molester who got (laughs) shot at the end you know i mean it was all it was super 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 duper bleak 
And, you know, I mean, it was still considered a mental illness at the time. So there wasn't any kind of guilt? Did you feel a kind of I guilt? I felt horrible or... guilt. I mean, I thought my whole life was ruined in many ways. I mean, and I thought it was ruined because I was gay and that was horrible. And I thought I was ruined because I was fat and that was horrible. And, um, you know, the thing is, again, the joy of getting older is you sort of realize nobody cared about me being gay. And, you know, later when I was super depressed and tried to commit suicide, I'm sure the gayness had a big, 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 big part to do it. I think there was also a clinical depression thing because I was very sort of just physical that I was just so sad and, you know, felt so um, like there was no way out of it kind of a situation. But, yeah, I felt really miserable and horrible about it. And it wasn't until... I went to Madrid to do my junior year where I met openly gay kids who weren't necessarily open to their um, families, but who were openly gay or kids with crazy haircuts or people who listened to alternative music. I mean, people who I was like, wow, these people are amazing. I wish I could be friends with them. And then I became friends with them. And then I was like, wow, it's okay. You could have a fabulous life. Because again, the only times I would see gays is when we would drive after... um, I'd been hospitalized. We then I would have to go every week to St. Joseph's Hospital for to see a therapist. And we would go once a month with the whole family to see this psychiatrist who was like very Freudian, Dr. Schulman, who was amazing and crazy at the same time. Was it your your father's addiction that that was the instigator for going no, to me. family? It was my suicide attempts. Then okay. at this point, we didn't even really know he was a drug addict officially. Interesting. And he kind of pulled strings to get us even to be able to see this psychiatrist because he was like a super like hard to get an appointment with. Was there just... ever pressure to have like lose one's virginity to a yes. woman? You know, well, so I went on a few dates with girls and, you know, or like my brother and his friends would we would get tickets to go to see like Billy Squire or Journey or Aerosmith or something, (laughs) you know, and always we would all ask a girl, you know, like take a date. So I would have to ask a girl, you know what I mean? I'd be like, oh, fuck no, am I going to ask? And those never went well. I mean, we would, I kissed a few girls and things like that, but often it would be sort of a disaster or something like that. But, um, but I was always like so miserable and unhappy about it. And, um, but anyway, such is life. And then actually later when I, Came back from Madrid, so I was like 19, I think, maybe 20. My parents had moved to Florida when I was in Madrid, and my mother actually doesn't rem- says she doesn't remember this, but I would call my mom every week and just kind of catch up, and she had said that she and my dad were going to Daytona Beach, Florida for vacation, and we had a little condo there that, you know, I we had always gone to, and so they said, oh, we're just going to go on vacation. I'll let you know when we get back. And like a month passed, and I didn't hear from them, so I called... I somehow tracked them down. I probably got the number from Mrs. Spevasek, my next door neighbor, who also, when I was, when my parents put me in the mental institution, I kept calling them and calling them. They didn't answer the phone. They were like talking to the psychiatrist or they were at the hospital or something. Finally, I called Mrs. Spevasek and said, there's been a terrible mistake. My parents put me in a mental institution. Can you have them come pick me up? Can you imagine poor Mrs. Spevasek? But, um, Anyway, so I probably got the number from her for Florida. And I called and my mother said, well, you know, we didn't want to tell you because we thought it would upset you, but we moved. So then, (laughs) And I was like, I said, you thought this was a more sensitive way to handle it? So I ended up going back to the Chicago area to be the best man in my cousin's wedding. And my brother was there. And so we stayed in our old, we kept in the house. They kept, my parents kept the house for a while. So we stayed there and then said, let's have a party because it was kind of they had taken most of the furniture, but there was still some. So we we're like, let's have a party. So we had a party and a bunch of the gays and freaks who I had hung out with, whom these druggy kids who we were friends with called us the Loose Hole Gang, which I thought was a very fun <laughs> name. So anyway, so they all came and I ended up spending some of them spent the night and one of them was gay who spent the night in my bedroom with me in my bed. And the next day, my brother was like, well, where did you sleep last night? And I said, oh, my bed. And he said, well, where did Paul sleep? 
And I said, my bad. And he was like, uh, 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 and I was like, well, what are you asking? And he just like freaked out and went out and called my mother, who was supposed to come in a couple days for my cousin's wedding, but ended up going to the airport right that minute, coming up. And I had picked her up at the airport and she made me go right to the Dr. Shulman to like talk to him about whether I was gay or not. And he just was like, well, are you gay? And I was like, well, I don't I sort of was equivocated. I mean, I should have just said, yes, uh, hello. I mean, I'm obviously gay, but I sort of was didn't say I wasn't and I didn't say I was. And so then there was this whole plot hatched of going to a prostitute or like my he actually made my poor mother. I feel so terrible for her. Go to the police station in Daytona Beach, Florida, talk to the policeman and say, my son has not, you know, might be gay. We want to find a prostitute for him, like to, just to see like if he's gay. She Do went you know? to the police. She went to the police station in, in Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, the this was Daytona of Beach your at the psychiatrist? Time, at the psychiatrist's suggestion. Who, again, wow. it's hard to, I, again, I don't want to just paint him as like a backwards freak. If I had just said, look, I'm gay, I think it would have been a different situation. So then they were like, well, that didn't work out. So then my brother was like, well, I've been to a whorehouse outside Las Vegas, which was legal. Why don't we go to Las Vegas? And then I finally was like, look, I'm not going to Las Vegas. And my dad said, well, you sound like you don't want to get better. And I was like, I'm not sick. And that sort of once I said once I put my foot down, that kind of changed everything. And people were fine ish. It was sort of the time, and again, I'm not trying to be an apologist. It was kind of the time that if you thought someone was gay, like it was, <gasps> oh mm. my god, it's like it's like they have a disease. It wasn't right. even that like you think, oh, that person's bad. I'll never speak to them again. It was just, you know, it was uh, thought of as a terrible thing. And probably AIDS at that time too. Maybe. This is pre-AIDS, but oh, pre-AIDS. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to when you were hospitalized, how how did you try to commit suicide? Well, I worked, my dad would bring me, my dad had a multiple sort of like medical centers with pharmacies attached to them that, and it was like for people on welfare or aid to families with dependent children in like very inner city Chicago. So in the summertime, he, I would just go to work with him sometimes and sort of count pills or like do whatever. I don't know why he brought me like, cause I was 12 or something or 13. Definitely and illegal. Definitely 100% illegal. No. <laughs> definitely 100% illegal. And also, like, why did he even want to have me there? Uh, confusing to me in many ways. But so I would steal drugs from there, but he didn't really have amphetamines there. So I took like Valium and things like that, which I didn't even know what they were. I was just like, this is drugs. Let's take some drugs. Yeah. So I overdose, tried to overdose on those a bunch of times. I ended up slashing my wrists the last time. And when I, the most closest to successful I came of doing a pill overdose might have even just been like a bottle of aspirin or something like that. And I did that at night and went to bed. And then I woke up the next morning after way after the school bus had come, kind of in like my hair was kind of half wet and I was kind of groggy. And it turned out that I had woken up in the morning or my mother had woken me up to go to school. To I was a freshman in high school. And I was, she said, I said, I felt sick. And when she, eventually when I woke up, she came in and said, what's going on? And I was like, nothing. And she said that how I had said I felt sick. And she said she knew I was on drugs. And so she was then arguing with me when she came in to say, tell me this. And I, she said, I know you're on drugs. What's going on? And I said, I tried to kill myself last night. Or I took a bottle of pills last night and tried to kill myself. And she started crying and ran. And then I can't remember exactly if... I think she said she was going to, I think they arranged to then like take me to the hospital. And then I went to take a shower to get ready and cut my wrist in the shower there. Mm-hmm. Sort of though, in a way for them to find me, like, you know what I mean? I, so, and then they called the ambulance and the ambulance came. And the funny thing is not funny, haha, but I remember thinking I, when I was a kid to me, the most glamorous thing I could, would ever had ever seen was the movie Valley of the Dolls. When at the very end, Anne 
Wells, played by Barbara Parkins, is sort of like unhappy and it's all come to a bad end. And she's riding back to New Jersey to where she's from on this train with Dionne Warwick singing. And she's immaculately coiffed, beautiful in like a fur coat and miserable, though. Like the husband, the guys left her and everything. She's miserable, but immaculately dressed. And to me, that was always my goal, to be miserable, but in a beautiful, glamorous looking way. And I don't know why. At 15, even, after a suicide attempt. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And um, which is crazy, because I mean, now I... I don't really ever want to be miserable. But to me, it was always, as long as you were glamorous looking, I, to me, there was something about that sort of dichotomy and being like a, a beautiful mess or like, yeah. I don't know why, maybe that's why Judy Garland's appealing or things like that. But mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, what am I going to wear? What am I going to wear? What am I going to wear? As I'm getting, you know, as I'm getting dressed to go to the mental hospital. Wow. And I ended up wearing this, I had this weird from Marshall Fields kind of balloon sleevey kind of weird sweater and I was not satisfied with it I mean I remember as I was riding in the car to this first we went to a hospital that was not St. Joseph's Hospital but then they moved me to Methodist it was called something Methodist but some other hospital that was very scary to me but I remember looking out the window and thinking this doesn't feel like the the dolls you know what I mean it doesn't feel so glamorous but um but yeah so I mean I was mentally ill so I mean in a way it's you know did your father visit you? And what was his reaction to you almost dying and trying to die? Um, he was supportive. I mean, you know, we weren't very demonstrative. Like, after that, after that, they would we said I love you to each other, which we had never really sort of said before then. Wow. But, um, and not in like a cold way, but I mean, we, you know, it's, we just weren't the types who said I love you. I mean, yeah. um, now I say I love you to every p- person on the street, practically, but, um, <laughs> and have, I do love them. Have you ever seen him cry? Um... I mean, I've seen him extremely fucked up. I'm sure, like at those moments, he probably had some had some tears. He and his mother had a horrible relationship, mm-hmm. and she was not a particularly nice person. Although I need to work on releasing that, and I mean, I've released it, but I need to like sort of try to get to know her past death and kind of see things from her perspective. But she was not maternal at all. He was basically raised by his grandmother, and he was extremely close to his father, who mm-hmm. I never met because when my father was in college, like his last year in pharmacy school, but he was he had been accepted to go to medical school at the University of Florida. And um, he was very excited to be a doctor, and his father died. And he was actually there, and the father was having a heart attack, and they called the ambulance, and the people, the ambulance people were like, it's not a heart attack, it's a go-. they thought it was something else, and my father was like, it's a heart attack, it's a heart attack. So anyway, they ended up not doing what they should have done, and he died. Oh, yeah. And then his mother, I, and I... I mean, you'd think I would know these details because it is like these are important things of my life and my parents' life and everything. But I don't know exactly the details. I've been told my father, I've talked to my father about it, that the mother kind of had a breakdown or some craziness happened and he had to deal with her and the father dying shit and the will and all that kind of stuff. So he ended up not going to medical school. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's not the tragedy. The tragedy is losing his father, who I, you know, I think is the most important person in his life. Did your father go to those sessions with you, then the family therapist? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all four of us. It's interesting to me, um, you know, that your brother mentioned that he was emotionally unavailable. Yeah. Like, in, in, you know, in a lot of your stories, he's, you don't mention him, you mention your mom. Yeah. But but to me, it's very striking that what year was it? It was late 70s that your father, who struggled so much with his own, you know, sobriety and being a, a dad, went and showed up for you. At those oh, yeah. sessions. Yeah, he kind of was always there on a certain level. But in another in another way, like I said, I mean, my mother for most of my life didn't work. So her full time job was us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So which spoils you in a way and makes you really um, 
an asshole on a certain level, you know what I mean? Like really dependent and entitled and stuff like that. But, um, and he, I don't know that we kind of wanted him necessarily to come. Like if I did a school play or something, I mean, I guess he came. I mean, I can't really remember, but I would be happy if he didn't come on a certain level. Mm. Not because I didn't, whatever, not because I disliked him, but because maybe I thought he'd be crazy or who knows. Like he went through sort of a cowboy phase, like where he'd wear cowboy boots and cowboy hats and he was like a pharmacist from the suburbs of Chicago like although he was from Indiana so in a way he was sort of country and it sort of was we were embarrassed and like he would he had this experimental Z28 car that he would like to him the peak of excitement and fun and glamour was to drive around the neighborhood in his fucking souped up Z28 with his cowboy hat on (laughs) with the windows all down blaring the Oak Ridge Boys and the Statler Brothers (laughs) with me riding shotgun like to him that was heaven it was misery for me it was so, the most embarrassing but every kid goes through that i guess where you're just like oh my god my parents are gonna are so embarrassing to me never my mother though i never felt that way about her but although who knows but um he's the, one of the smartest people i've ever known he's has a memory like an iron i don't know what like like a steel trap although it's starting to go because he's 78 but he would just like do such embarrassing things like stick his finger in the salad dressing thing to taste it or just kind of millions of things and my brother wrote this hilarious letter recounting the times and at the time of course we were embarrassed and would just be like don't look don't look pretend you don't know and pretend you don't know so yeah i mean i think there was a lot of that at the time because also he was his, his taste was so weird and different to mine although now i completely appreciate it and one crazy thing is as a kid he's he always has loved world war ii history so he would love watching world at war or victory at sea all these kinds of like black and white documentaries about the holocaust or world war ii or and I, he would watch them over and over and over. Anytime they were on, he would watch them. And I thought, God, this is insane. But I was too lazy to get off the couch. So I would watch them too. And now I fucking love the military channel. So when I gave up that, oh, I'm embarrassed the what my parents do kind of thing, I love it. I, I embraced it and we have the same taste. And, you know, so there you go. Who That's knew? Great. But, yeah, we, we never really related until much later. I signed up for this royalty tour because I'm obsessed with royal history. I'd always gone to used bookstores, which I really don't like because they're dusty and crusty and smell and the people are cranky. And to the, I always go there to find these old royal biographies or books that I'd look, you know, I always scour the bibliography at the end of any royalty book I had. And then I just did a search for one of these books, and I found this crazy guy in Canada who had every book I'd ever wanted, and he also organized these tours, including the Nicholas and Alexandra tour of St. Petersburg, Russia. So I used my emergency credit card that my parents pay for and put down the non-refundable deposit and then called my parents and was like, oh, you know, can you, I don't know how to pay for this. Can you pay for it for my birthday, Christmas, whatever? And my dad said, you know, I'll pay for the whole thing if I can go with. And I was like, first of all, I was horrified because I was still in the I was delivered to the wrong house phase of like, well, I've been to Europe 25 times and you've never been to Europe. And, you know, it's such a shitty attitude. But at the same time, he was willing to pay for it. So I was like, okay, well, come on along. And why do you even care? And he I had no idea. He had always wanted to travel to fun places, but my mother hates to travel, so he never went anywhere. So, and how do I not even, how do you not even know that about your father, someone who's, you live in the house with them? And it just showed I didn't really know him at all. And so we, he went and had the best time, and I was a little bit jaded at the beginning because he would leap out of bed at six in the morning, every morning, and want to call my mother and tell her what we had done the day before. So we'd call and tell her what we'd been up to. And I, you know, I finally said, Dad, I don't talk to her. I don't want to talk to her every day when I'm in America. Why do I want to call her from St. Petersburg? 
But anyway, so we ended up bonding and we've gone to India, we've gone to Africa a few times, gone to Russia a bunch of times. So it's it ended up being an amazing coming together for us. How old were you when that first when that first trip happened? That I was maybe in late, my late 20s or 30, I would say. And now I'm 53. So that was probably like wow. 20 some years ago. That's really special. Yeah. What do you think you and your because you're you both you and your dad both love these World War II documentaries mm. and war hero stories and you love royalty mm. and you bonded over traveling and, and he gets to go look at war sites and battlefields. And what do you think is appealing to both of you about that? It's a good question. I mean, for me, the thing I love about royal history and my specialty is Queen Victoria's children and grandchildren. So like World War II, everyone, all the royals were related and you're, you know, at war against your country of birth or your sisters, the queen of the country you're at war with or something like that. And I, so I find that very fascinating. And also, of course, there are jewels and gowns and hemophilia and all kinds. Of, it's basically a soap <laughs> opera. And I'm, as we've discussed, I love soap operas in every way. And my dad, I don't know. He just loves any history, really. And that's why at first when I said, why would you want to come on this Nicholas and Alexander tour? He, again, just he sort of knows all history just in general. I just, I'm just a big nerd and love anyone being nerdy about whatever it is. They could be about ukuleles. It could be about the war. It could be about anything. I just love people who get really focused and into those things. And I think he has one last trip in him. Mm. I mean, he says he has more, but I think my mother thinks he doesn't, you know, because um, he's in great shape physically, but the mind is going a little bit. And But so we're trying to go to Poland next spring. And he just wants to go to concentration camps, which is insane to think about. But it's like, because I just yeah. said, well, do you want to go here? Do you want to? And he's like, I just want to see concentration camps. And I actually went to Auschwitz a couple of years ago. And I'd been to Poland a few times and didn't go to a con. I could have gone, but I was like, I don't think I can handle it. I think it'll mm. be too upsetting. But so I went and it was upsetting, of course, but it was also a little bit upsetting because it's sort of a little bit Disneylandish, Like, it's so crowded, and it's like, you know, there's a tour leaving every 10 minutes, and you don't really have time to sort of sit and absorb. It's kind of like you're kind of rushed through. But um, So I've been doing research on other concentration camps as well to sort of see if there are other ones that would be more, I don't know, less pop, less crowded and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. We'll have to check in with you uh, after please you do. take a trip to concentration camp, with your The dad. concentration camp tour of Poland. <laughs> have you had any moments, I mean, traveling with your dad of... Of, I mean, I know that you mentioned earlier that you guys have never really specifically talked that there hasn't been an apology. Mm -hmm. um, and not to make it about me, but my my own my father died of alcoholism, and I was always waiting for the apology, always, you know. And I I would get shades of it, but it never was enough. It was like, but there needs to be tears, and he needs to be talking about this episode that happened, like. Do you still wait for those moments or do you wait for those um, moments with your brother ever? No. Yeah. I mean, well, maybe my brother I have uh, issues with that maybe I'm harder on him than my father. But I mean, I think my parents were always so generous in so many ways. And, you know, whether that was financially, like they paid for me to go to college twice. They paid for my trainer and my therapist until a couple of years. You know what I mean? Like they've always been... So good on that level. And not that it's just about money, but also even once they got over the horrible stuff, the, the you know, the mental illness, we got through that and the them feeling how they felt about me being gay and all that. Everything is just so nice that I'm just so happy that it's so nice that it's like, that's all I care about, really. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I don't 
want to dwell on it. And like I said, I've released whatever bitterness I had and I was pissed and unhappy with him for a long time. And again, it just, it, it is what it is. And I haven't apologized or maybe I have apologized to my mother or something like that. But, um, and I think I've told them both they were good parents and that, you know, I know I was a handful and things like that, but, um, you know, I think we're different that way and that I don't really need, it would be great if he apologized, but I, I don't expect it or need it necessarily to kind of have a happy life. And maybe it's wrong of me, but I think about those happy moments or like the fun times we had as kids. And yeah, I mean, yeah, there were, and again, you know, there are people, there are such horror stories. People have lived through such horrible things. And I like didn't, nobody died in my family that I knew or cared about until my grandparents died like pretty recently. You know what I mean? So I never had to deal with that or all the trouble I've had also, I realize now are the best things that have ever happened to you. You know, the things you think that are the worst thing. I mean, I don't know if you feel like your father being a horrible alcoholic is the best thing that ever happened to you, but in a way that's where you really learn. And once Mm. you get over it and get process it and get through it, it's like you learn a whole lot more from that than from like a, some kind of 1950s sitcom idea of what your family life is. Totally. Yeah. I, I've gone, I was in a therapy the other day and I was talking about um, still having this instinct to hide that he was an alcoholic, you know, and she's like, well, that's because you still wish that he hadn't been. And it's like, I'll sit here, I'll tell anybody that he Mm -hmm. was, but I guess there is some little part of me that's like, I wish he hadn't been. Like it's, I'm still struggling with the acceptance. But when you talk about the ways that your parents helped you financially, you know, some, some people talking about shame, some people are very secretive about that. Some people feel like that's a knock against their quote success but I think for some parents that's the only way that they know how to show their love or show Mm -hmm. up in a meaningful way and in New York City when you're working for an undisclosed indie magazine that does not pay very well Mm -hmm. um that can that can be huge yeah it meant that you got to stay here absolutely um, and thrive and you know as you mentioned too the I have a weird disease where I just fucking let it all hang out. And the more people there are, the more likely I am to tell an incredible intimate thing. You know what I mean? I'm more comfortable in front of a big crowd than I am with my closest friend. But I still also, though, and it's liberating. And people, you know, tell me like when they see my Instagram about being a drug addict or being, and I hesitated about writing about being a drug addict because it's an anonymous program. But at the same time, it's such an important part of who I am. And Mm. I love talking about it. And I love that I where I am now and I appreciate so much where my life is now compared to where I was when I was a drug addict. And, but at the same time, you know, people say to me like, Oh, you're so brave, which fat people don't like to be called brave. Like, especially if it's for posting a shirtless photo, but, um, but also it's, you know, it's, it's all true and everyone has experiences and there's nothing to be embarrassed about. But the, any, I do sometimes hesitate talking about my dad in a certain level because Partly, I feel like it's not my place to tell his story like his, but it's my story, too. I mean, you know, we were kicked out of the house in the middle of the night. And but I maybe then I also sort of hurry to then say, oh, but he was so smart or he was so fun. And I still think I had a good childhood. But, you know, because that is sort of his story. And it's not I I don't want people to immediately. I know if I heard that story, I'd think, oh, man, what a monster. Or Oh, you sort of make these um, sort of preconceived ideas about hearing when you hear something about that and the other thing like I don't I for a long time didn't talk about suicide attempts or my depression or I haven't completely processed it and completely Mm -hmm. gotten over it I mean I'm over it in the sense that I'm happy I didn't die but I also I feel like I don't know what to say like every time someone who's 
very like a there's a high profile suicide. I feel like oh I need to do an Instagram post that sort of has some kind of upbeat message, and I don't know I don't know what to say, mm-hmm. and so. I sort of hesitate. I don't. Oh, I hesitate to talk about it because I don't know it. I don't have answers for it. Whereas some of the other things, I feel like I do, and I'm at peace about them. And it's not that I'm not at peace about my personal experience with it, but I'm just sort of. I don't feel like there's an answer. You know, the answer if you're fat is to love yourself at whatever size, or to you know that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's pad answers, but for if someone who wants to kill themselves, there's really not that answer. I don't. Feel right. Like. Yeah. I think some of like the language around like self care and self love and yeah. and the discussion of mental illness, it's it's great that we're there culturally. But yeah. you know, you just said the word pat the the pat. You know, reach out if you need help. Exactly. Or just which, love yourself. Which is the last uh, the last thing I would have done at the time was to reach out if I, right. I needed help. And I wonder, too, like, you know, talking the difficulty about talking about the suicide attempt, which makes a whole bunch of sense, um, but also growing up with a parent that's an addict or that you don't know what to expect. And I wonder if it's the same for you, Aaron, from your experience. But, like, if anything, it taught me that people are very complicated um, and that people have different shades to themselves. um, And some of those shades are super shitty. And they have, you know, again, I don't. I should maybe when I go home for Christmas, I'll talk to my dad. I don't even really know that much about his life in a way. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've told you what I know in Mm -hmm. many ways. But, you know, I saw this amazing Jane Fonda um, masterclass on Oprah. It's where she sort of just a person talks around. It's heaven. 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 I worship Jane Fonda. It's so amazing. I did a charity thing with her. She was amazing. I thought we were going to be best friends forever. I've (laughs) talked to her twice since and whatever. It did not happen. But she's so brilliant and so brave and so genius. And she had said, the, you know, to really get to know yourself, you have to get to know your parents and sort of who they are as people. I think of my parents as like, oh, the one people who give me money and pick me up from theater practice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But they had a whole life before they even got there. They had disappointments and dreams. And I don't know. I didn't even I don't think I've ever necessarily even said to my dad, are you did it crush you that you didn't go to medical school because you wanted mm-hmm. to be a doctor? And he probably also being a man, a straight man, he'd probably be like, oh. It's all right. But, you know, it probably was a very traumatic experience for him. So, you know, we have to sort of think of them as people. And you know what I mean? Someone who's an alcoholic has a lot of problems and they make themselves miserable. And it's not, you know, it's even though I've been an addict myself, it's easy to sort of fall back on the thinking of like, oh, you're selfish and just off having a good time. It's, you know, blowing off your responsibilities when in reality you have this disease and it makes you do horrible things right. to other people and to yourself. The level of pain that you have to be in to yeah. come home and kick your kids out of the house yeah. in the middle and, of the night. Yeah, and like what are you capable of also? It's right. like what expecting people – like it's easy to hold our parents to standards that we don't keep ourselves. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because if I had to be – I would be – I feel like if I was a parent, I would be the strictest parent, like, show me your homework. No, you can't go out. Like, I had no curfew. We drank. Like, we we sort of kind of got away with anything. And I feel like I have no discipline. And I'm not blaming my parents for me having no discipline. But I feel like I would be a little bit of a, a little bit more the opposite of how I was. Yeah, that was actually our last question is, do you think the way you were raised and your relationship with your father at all had an effect on whether or not you wanted to be a father or? I wonder. I mean, I I don't think I would want to be chill, a parent, partly because, I mean, I'm 53, so I mean, maybe the ship has sailed. But also, it's like so much work and such a responsibility. I mean, and I do know, though, that 
like if baby boom, like Diane Keaton, if I inherited a baby or something like that, I would make it work. And I think that you know, too. It would be fine. Baby boom. <laughs> Anything with Diane, Diane Keaton is my role That model. movie is the litmus. For oh my God. People. Absolutely. That's my, my shining star that I follow. But I feel like the thing that I've always known, and I don't know how I always knew it, I always knew my parents loved me and cared and wanted what was best for me, even though we yeah. completely disagreed. I mean, I think they voted for Reagan once. I mean, you know what I mean? Like we completely disagreed a lot, a lot of things, but I always knew they wanted what was best for me and loved me. And that, that, you know, and part of that's just showing up and being there. And, you know, I didn't necessarily realize it at the time, but kind of, I feel like in a way I always did. And I would certainly always love a kid, but it's, it's just, it's a fucking challenge. I mean, and yeah. I'm at a place, you know, I love living alone. I love going to on trips when I want to go on trips. And look, if you take a kid, you have to fucking not only take the kid, you got to buy him a ticket. You got to spend on, you got to, it's the, it's the stereotype. You just got to really, do you have kids? No way. God but that's him. why. But you got to fucking have, spend yeah, all your money expensive. and time and effort. And it's, it's <laughs> sort of like your full-time job. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I could do it if I had to, but I guess I could, you know, walk over hot coals for 10 miles too, but that doesn't mean I, that I want to do it. But, um, and I wish my, I know my parents would have loved having grandchildren, my yeah. dad is, it's amazing to see my dad with little kids because they love him for some reason. And he's a silver fox. He has a giant, thick uh, head of thick white hair, which yeah. he's had since the guts exploded. His hair turned white. So Santa. from the time he was in his 30s. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember my little cousin, who's now fully grown, my little cousin Stephen, when he was like four or five at some family gathering at some restaurant or whatever, was always obsessed with my dad. And he sort of tapped him on the elbow and said, Uncle Dave, can we go in the bathroom so I can touch your hair? And I was like, <laughs> isn't that amazing? But um, so I'm sad that they, but they're, they've totally are accepted. fine with it and have accepted it. And I just think it's sort of not meant to be, but I, you know, so I think that's sort of the test in the end um, is if you know, they loved you and felt supported on that level, despite all the other disagreements and craziness. And you kind of eventually can say, they they were good enough and they did their yeah, they, too they were, good almost they were doing me. the best they could absolutely absolutely yeah. and you know again because they also I feel thrilled that I had to live in a time despite the hideousness of the world that like gays have progressed in a way where you know I could live in a place where it's great to be gay and celebrated to be gay and and whatnot despite all the horrible things around the world with gays and other things. But, you know, my parents, like, my mother's goal was to get married and have children. And it's like, she was an amazing person. So, I mean, it's, and she's happy because that was her goal and she achieved it. But it's a little bit like, I think, God, if imagine being a woman then. And, you know, and my father also, like, he was sort of taught, like, your job is to drive through rush hour traffic, make lots of money and kind of just provide and on a certain level. And who knows if that fulfilled him, you know what I mean? So I feel in a way that just grateful in a way to not be in the same situations that they've been and I think they did a great job. If you or someone you know struggles with suicidal thoughts, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Erin Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at TMAYF Podcast and on Instagram at Tell Me About Your Father. Call our hotline at 888 318 DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888 318 DADS. 
This podcast was inspired by Erin's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were recorded by Rob Hahn at the Playground Studios in Brooklyn and edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donoher. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Mark Sussman, Jessica Suarez, Michael Vecchio and Betsy Lerner.